just as we, we get ourselves focused into this time where we can hear God's word, let me just um, begin our time with, uh, with the words of Psalm 19 and just reflect upon what King David here says about the law of God, the word that we are about to, um, to open and to work our way through. This is what he says in Psalm 19 from verse 7. Just let these words soak in. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. This is what the Bible says about the Bible. And this is the word that we are uh, about to uh, come under as we, we continue in our study on the, the book of Titus. So let's um, commit this time in prayer and uh, let those, those words that describe the law of the Lord, the, the, the word of God, let those sink into you as we uh, prepare our hearts and our minds uh, for our study today. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you uh, that your word is perfect sure, right, pure, clean, true, and more valuable than gold. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. It is a sufficient word to us. It is a true word. It is a word that is able to make us complete in all the good works that you have uh, uh, set in place for us. It is a word that is able to uh, bring people to salvation. It is the only thing that is able to achieve these things. So uh, we pray that you would settle our hearts and minds now. We pray that your spirit would be working in each one of us through your word, illuminating our hearts and our minds and driving us into the word and causing us to submit to it, uh, to be encouraged by it, to be challenged by it. And uh, we ask these things in your precious son's name. Amen. Alright, well please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Last week uh, we saw in verses 10 to 11, uh, the beginning of the Apostle Paul's explanation of the, the elders' task. What are the elders to do in the life of the church? And the first part of that task is to confront the deceivers. You see, on the island of Crete, uh, there were many false teachers that Titus and those he appointed to eldership had to deal with. These people were, were teaching for shameful gain. They were seeking only to line their own pockets and they were causing great chaos and damage to the families uh, in the church. And so what was Paul's instruction concerning them? They must be silenced. 
Now, Paul was not speaking of, of silencing those outside of the church, but silencing the wolves in sheep clothing that had sprung up within the congregations. And he confirms this elsewhere. To the world, we are to evangelise. Uh, we're not to judge them, we're to evangelise. Uh, the focus Paul is having here on judgment is within the house of God itself. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 to 13, which is uh, set in the context of, of dealing with someone who calls themselves a brother in Christ, but is sinning dramatically, uh, he says this, 1 Corinthians 5, from verse 12, says Paul, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, in today's age of so-called tolerance, uh, words like this seem incredibly offensive. But they only seem uh, strange and out of place because in the last few generations, uh, churches have been influenced by the culture to avoid speaking on passages like this. They seem strange and offensive to us because we've never come across these verses before. But of course, that has been to the detriment of the church and it's only allowed more falsehood to prevail. We can see that now as many denominations uh, seem like they're in a race to be the first to change their, their doctrine and their stances to be in line with the moral revolution. But really, this is just a race to the bottom. And if we look at the number of people attending these churches overall, we, we see that they're quickly dwindling away. Now, there's no life in falsehood. But the elder's task involves more than confronting the deceivers. It also involves counselling the deceived. And why counselling? Well, it's not just because I like alliteration. But unlike the false teachers who must be confronted and silenced, those who are deceived, uh, it is not simply a matter of rebuke, but of restoration and reconciliation. You see, the purpose of church discipline is always about growth and maturity in Christ. And so with those things in mind, let's hear the words in Titus chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, which is going to be our focus uh, for today. So Paul says this, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Now, for anyone who has studied these verses before, and right now two of our Bible study groups in the church are going through the book of Titus, you would know that there is some debate as to who it is that is being rebuked in these verses. Uh, is it the false teachers uh, whom Paul has already spoken about in the previous verses? Or has Paul shifted in his thought uh, to speak of those in the church who are being deceived by the false teachers? And there are notable scholars who come down on either side uh, of this issue. Well, I've shown my hand straight away uh, by speaking about this section as counselling the deceived. And there are two reasons for why I've come to that conclusion. First, there really does seem to be a development of Paul's thought as he calls Titus to silence the deceivers 
but then to sharply rebuke the deceived so that these people, these believers, may be sounder in the faith that they already possess. But second, and of of more significance, is that in verse 14, there seems to be a distinction uh, between those who seek to turn others away from the truth and those who are being turned away from the truth, between the deceivers and between those being deceived. So, I believe that in verse 12, Paul shifts his focus from the deceivers to the deceived. From the need for elders to confront the deceivers to the need for elders to counsel the deceived. Now, if dealing with false teachers in the church is considered out of place nowadays, how much more so is dealing with those in the church who have been deceived by false teaching? whose beliefs and behaviour have headed away from truth and godliness as a result. Turns out this has always been a problem in the church. Back in the 1600s, one reformed pastor, Richard Baxter, he addressed the issue of avoiding church discipline. And he said this, Many of us who would be ashamed to omit preaching or praying half so much have little considered what we are doing while living in the willful neglect of this duty and other parts of discipline, so long as we have done. We think little how we have drawn the guilt of swearing and drunkenness and fornication and other crimes upon our own heads by neglecting to use the means which God has appointed for the cure of them. So now... As we look through these verses in Titus, may the Holy Spirit graciously illuminate their meaning to us and to see their significance in the life of Christ's church. So this morning we're going to see that counselling the deceived involves three things, three important aspects. And the first of which is a careful reflection. You know, it's a terribly unwise move uh, to paint every person and every situation with the same brush. Uh, The actions of one person may be like those of another, but the reasons, uh, the motivations that underlie those actions may be altogether different. Only the Lord knows the inner workings of a person's heart truly and completely. In Psalm 139 verse 2, David declared to God, You discern my thoughts from afar. Only God knows what's really going on in a person's heart and mind. So if we are not considerate and thoughtful and prayerful, asking God for discernment about what's going on in a a particular person's life and the situations around it, it will likely lead to misunderstanding. And it's also important never to jump to conclusions. It's like leaping over a fence only to realise the fence was on the edge of a cliff. Just, just reflect upon the words of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 18. Verse 2, we read, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. And then in verse 13, If one gives an answer before he hears... It is his folly and shame. Now, it may seem 
that these mistakes are exactly what Paul is doing in Titus chapter 1 and verse 12, when he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Seems like he's painting with a very wide brush there. But in reality, Paul is teaching us the importance of giving careful reflection before responding with action. And how's he doing that? Well, let's see. First of all, a careful reflection is one that seeks the truth. Paul is is quoting testimony given by one of the respected men of Crete. He is wisely allowing the words of of someone the Cretans held up and honoured, one of their own, to provide the assessment for him. The one who gave this testimony is generally believed to be a man named Epimenides, um, who lived in the 6th century BC. That's probably not a name you'd find in the top 100 of baby names for 2018, but Paul's also not acknowledging Epimenides as an actual prophet. He's simply saying that this was a man whom the Cretans believed was a prophet. And what gives the statement divine authority is Paul's declaration in verse 13 that this testimony is true. But it's not just Paul who agreed with this statement. Uh, Writing 100 years prior to Paul, uh, Cicero, the famous Roman statesman, declared that Moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honourable. And so Paul's wisdom is shown in that he has allowed the words of someone the people respected to shine a light on their own character. So he's clearly shown the need to, to truly understand the character and circumstances of the people that we're serving. So a careful reflection seeks the truth. Secondly, a careful reflection is one that seeks to be thorough. We have to note the problem of of taking this quote uh, as being literal rather than general. You see, if, if Cretans are always liars, then as the statement was made by a Cretan, how can we possibly believe that it is true? If this statement was inclusive, then the speaker would be lying about all Cretans being liars. And it just leaves us sitting on a a merry-go-round that we're unable to get off from. So we need to see that by using this quote, Paul is, is drawing attention to the general nature of the culture in which Titus and the elders he appointed and those from within his church are stemming from. This is the culture that Titus and the elders are ministering to. To fail to take this into consideration, to to go about ministering thinking that honesty and and goodness and and diligence were an innate part of the culture from which the church members had come from, when the evidence clearly stood against that notion, would be just as undiscerning as, as thinking that every Cretan operated on the same base and morally deprived level as the next person. The comment from Epimenides about Cretans being liars, evil and lazy, it helps to establish the difficulty that Titus and the elders would face in declaring truth that accords with godliness. And it helps the people in the Cretan churches to think hard about the influence that their culture may be having on them in the way that they receive the gospel. 
I mean, how often do we stop and consider the impact that our culture has on us? For instance, when was the last time you reflected on the moral quality of the TV shows or the movies that you generally watched? If we are not diligent and prayerful in discerning the effect culture is having on us, then we can be sure that it will be having a considerable effect. And so Paul is speaking of the need to have a reality check. He's showing the importance of discernment and the need for a thorough assessment. For believers in general and and for elders in particular, there is to be an attitude of love that will always consider someone innocent until proven guilty, uh, while at the same time, an attitude that is aware of sin in this world and is willing to act in love when that sin affects those around us. And a loving attitude is one that will not leave a brother or sister in Christ in their sin and disobedience, but will do everything they can to lead them back into truth and godliness. It's actually unloving to leave them in that place. And so, if a careful reflection reveals matters of grave trouble, then it must be followed by a clear rebuke. Paul says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. To rebuke means to expose a person's sins to them and convince them of their guilt. In 1 Timothy 5, 19-20, Paul uses the same word to explain what must happen to elders uh, who are found to be acting in sin. He says this, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And so the difference between members of the congregation and those in positions of leadership is brought out here in that the sins of elders that violate their noble position must always be exposed publicly. And the reason, of course, is that their position of authority means that their sins can have an extraordinarily detrimental effect on the congregation. As the pulpit goes, so goes the church. But what does Paul say regarding the congregation member who is sinning by following the beliefs and the behaviours of the false teachers? Well, he says that rebuke must be given. But this does not necessarily mean in public, uh, at least to begin with. Paul and, and Titus would have been innately aware of the instructions the Lord Jesus gave about discipline in the church that Matthew recorded in chapter 18. So just flick over to to Matthew 18 and we're going to see these verses in context. We're not going to stay with this too long, but it's important to see these verses. Matthew 18, from verse 15 we read, If your brother sins against you, and remember, this is the Lord Jesus speaking. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that 
every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So there are levels of discipline where the pressure to respond is elevated after each stage a person refuses to repent. And this process, at least the first level, is something that should be carried out as part of normal life in the congregation by the congregation. Jesus makes that clear in Luke chapter 17, where he said, just mark that verse, Luke 17, in verse 3 and 4, he says this, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Or think of Paul's words to the church in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14. This is to the whole church. He says, and we encourage you, brothers, admonish the idle, that is, warn them. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This is the job of the whole church. The problem, however, is that we are constantly tempted with the sinful desire to gossip about others rather than to act maturely and talk to a person directly. And the Bible counters this sinful temptation with endless commands not to gossip or slander. So here's just two. In Leviticus 19 and verse 16, the Lord God said to the people of Israel, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. That's pretty clear. Proverbs 20 verse 19 we read, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore do not associate with a simple babbler. So who are the people that you spend your time with? How are you talking when you are with them? And what do you find yourselves talking about? Our companions can affect us just as much as the culture can. And so calling fellow believers to account is an important aspect of church life. If we believe, as the scriptures say, that Christians are part of the body of Christ, then we will do everything we can for our brothers and sisters to help them in their pursuit of holiness. And not only for their sakes, but for the sake of the whole body and for the glory of Christ. And yet Paul emphasises here that carrying out discipline is an integral part of the elders' task. Now even if you were unconvinced earlier by my interpretation that these words of Paul here in, in Titus 1 are specifically dealing with with sinning church members rather than false teachers. Nevertheless, Paul does spell this task out clearly elsewhere. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 13, he tells the church, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labour among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So to admonish means to warn. And it's a wider category of which rebuking would be a specific example. If 
the sheep are headed into danger, then out of care and concern, the shepherd must bring them back safely. The most well-known passage of a shepherd's care is the 23rd Psalm, and obviously we we recognise that speaking about God as the shepherd. Nevertheless, verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. While at times the shepherd used his staff to direct the sheep, it was a comfort to them, as it was for their own good. Think as well of of what the writer of Hebrews declared to the church. He said in Hebrews 13 verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now what's interesting about that verse is the verse that follows, where the writer says in verse 18, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honourably in all things. And so the elders have authority, but the congregation is to pray for the elders, that the elders lead as God would have them do, that they would continue to act honourably in all things. See, we must remember that the church is not a secular body, it is a spiritual body. And so neither the elders nor the congregation should ever be tempted to use political means to bring about change, but only the spiritual resources that God has granted us. You know, the world says it is okay to bring about change with power plays, with threats, or with intimidation. But God's kingdom is nothing like that. Christians must seek to grow one another to maturity in Christ through the spiritual means that he has given us, through prayer, through the word, through speaking the truth in love. So Paul says to Titus and and by extension the elders that after they have made careful reflection that they are to give a clear rebuke. But still, to rebuke them sharply To rebuke those deceived with sharpness, that sounds very harsh indeed. However, given the assessment of the situation in Crete, there was a need to be frank with those drifting into falsehood. And this is an act of love. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Yet it takes godly wisdom to carry out godly discipline. Speaking of this, John Chrysostom was a famous Christian preacher in the 4th century and he said this, As he who treats with harshness the meek and ingenuous may destroy them, so he who flatters one that requires severity causes him to perish. Just think of it this way. A doctor does not treat all his patients alike. He's not going to give the same treatment to a person suffering from a cold as he would to a person suffering from cancer. To tell a person with cancer to go home, rest and keep up your fluids is not going to be of any great help. 
that patient is going to need the doctor to do some things that might seem pretty awful and harsh and invasive, but if he doesn't, the patient won't have a chance of survival. And so Paul is advocating that appropriate measures be taken to meet each situation. Moreover, he's saying that the the rebuke must be cutting, not callous, precise, not presumptuous, helpful, not a hindrance, beseeching them, not belittling them. The elders are to use a scalpel, not a sledgehammer. To see this even more, just turn with me and see with what, what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul has given instruction to Timothy throughout that letter on, on how to minister and lead and, and, and call people to account, uh, how to deal with false teachers all throughout that letter. But then he says this in verses 1 to 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. So the word translated here as rebuke is a a different word that we find in Titus. Here, it means to strike someone with insensitive, brutal words. Don't use a sledgehammer. And so this doesn't contradict what Paul says in in Titus. For even though uh, there is a need to be direct, there is never a need to, uh, to, to be derisive. There's never a cause to be harsh and unkind. In his words to Titus, Paul is is giving the command to deal directly with sinning believers without giving any more details to who they might be. In 1 Timothy, there is more clarity given. He tells Timothy some wisdom as to how he is to speak to different ages and different genders in the church. If the church is the household of God as the Bible makes clear, then it is appropriate to treat fellow believers with the same respect that we expect uh, for one's own immediate family. We are to approach older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, and younger women as sisters. What a stark difference that is. Right To think of members in the church as being part of God's family together as opposed to thinking of people in the church as kind of merely those who, who congregate in the same place once a week. This is wise advice for how each member of the church is to treat one another. Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. But it's particularly relevant and essential when thinking about the need for elders to counsel the deceived with a clear rebuke. And we see more of the kind of attitude that is to be exhibited by elders as Paul shows that a clear rebuke must be given for a commendable reason. What should be the purpose behind giving rebuke? Paul says that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Whenever the matter of church discipline is raised in the New Testament, it is always made perfectly clear that the goal is restoration and reconciliation, never retribution, never. 
We just quoted Jesus' words in Matthew 18, in verse 15, where he said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't go elsewhere, go to them. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, even if the the process of discipline elevates to the point where a sinner is excommunicated, even here it's not the end. Jesus tells the church to treat that person like what? A Gentile and a tax collector. Now just think, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He preached to them and he prayed for them. And Jesus reminds the church that we are to be eager to forgive once repentance has been exhibited. Uh, Because in the next section in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells the parable about the unforgiving servant. And he does this to remind believers that since we have been forgiven greatly by God, then we should be willing and ready to forgive those who offend us. And so, if a person has been removed from the church through disciplinary action, and by the grace of God they are brought to repentance and and display the fruit of that repentance in their lives, then the church is to be joyous in welcoming them back into the fellowship. And so the purpose of church discipline is always aimed at, at reconciliation and restoration. Now, Paul's reason here consists of one positive aspect followed by two negative aspects. So what is Paul looking for here? What is he saying a clear rebuke will bring about? Well, in a positive sense, it is that they may be sound in the faith. This means to have a healthy understanding of Christian faith. In Titus 1 verse 9, we saw in previous weeks that the elder must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. The word translated as sound is, is where we derive the English word for hygiene. So to be sound means to be clean or healthy. Faith stands here as a summary of Christian faith. In the New Testament letter written by Jude, he speaks in verse 3 of the, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the purpose of rebuking the the deceived members of the church is to lead them away from falsehood and into the truths of Christianity, to understand the gospel, to understand the person and the work of Christ, to understand the nature of saving faith as being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And to understand that that justification always leads to sanctification. That faith which does not desire to be conformed to Christ and to submit to his word is no faith at all. And so here is the positive aspect to discipline. That a person may be found sound in the faith. But there's a flip side to the coin of discipline. Not only is it about drawing someone to the truth, It is about drawing someone away from falsehood. Last week we touched on these matters, uh, but let's expand upon them a little bit more in the time we have remaining. The first thing Paul wants the Cretans to avoid is Jewish myths. There are a couple other places that Paul speaks about myths in the pastoral letters. For instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 
He speaks of uh, the false teachers and that Timothy is to to rebuke them, uh, telling them in verse 4 not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. See, Christianity is about truth. It's not about fables. It's about history, not myths and legends. But from the link that Paul makes between myths and endless genealogies, what seems to have been happening is that the false teachers were creating stories about minor Old Testament characters, making mountains out of molehills and and giving far more prominence to things of far less significance. It gave the false teachers a, a seeming authority, for only they knew how to really interpret the Bible. And they were able to dismiss the clear teachings and raise up their obscure teachings as the reality. And many were following them. Some, no doubt, because they had a desire to learn the truth and they thought these men were upright. But others, they simply followed out of sheer rebellion. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul speaks of the need for powerful preaching of the word for this exact reason. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so the elders' rebuke is to stop people heading off into speculation, to obscurity, to anything that presents itself as truth, but is really a deadly trap. And the second thing Paul wanted the Cretans to avoid is the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Similar terms are used by Paul in 1 Timothy 4, which helps us understand more of what was happening. Again, he writes about the false teachers. And in verse 3, he says this about their teaching, that they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So the commands of of the people are, are probably related to food and to marriage, both things that God has created good, to be enjoyed, but things that the false teachers are are telling the believers in Crete that they should avoid. And why were they telling them to be avoided? Because sinners always desire to do things their own way. And so the false teachers seem to be setting up a list of of do's and and of don'ts that will, in their own mind, make people acceptable to God. Of course, that's just totally absurd, is it not? Even if a person could, from this point in time, start living a perfect life, uh, they would still have all the sin that they'd acquired up until that point, they started living perfectly, because God is infinitely holy Even the slightest blemish is infinitely offensive to him. People have always tried to come up with their own standards of what is appropriate godliness and righteousness in their lives. But we are so blinded to the fact of just how far short of the glory of God we've fallen. It's like the the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11 where the people worked and worked to reach the heavens. And then what happens? God appears. He comes down to see what they've been doing. Now, it wasn't limiting God's omnipresence. The the 
denying that God was everywhere. It was showing the limits of man's presence and man's ability. Until we see God in all his holiness, and until we recognize our position before him in our sinfulness, we will never realize our inability before him and our absolute need for his mercy and grace to save us. The false teachers, as false teachers always do, tried to convince people that God is not as holy as he is and that people are not as sinful as they are. But as we saw last week, the false teachers, they don't even live by their own standards for godliness as their lives exhibit the fruit of disobedience and greed and immorality. Leading people away from this falsehood back into the truth and godliness is the purpose of church discipline. It's not about the elders getting their own way. It is about the purity of God's household. And only in following God's design do we find such great joy in our lives as his people. So this morning we've we've seen that part of the elders' task is to counsel the deceived, a process that involves careful reflection Clear rebuke and must be for a commendable reason. I want to just leave you with one final thought. The Psalms open with this straightforward message. So clear, it's hard to miss. These are the first three verses of the Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. If we are to keep ourselves from succumbing to falsehood, then we are to immerse ourselves in the truth. Let's pray. Dear Lord, once again we are so thankful that you have revealed your word to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be working in our hearts and minds to, uh, to help us understand these truths, these truths which uh, stand so at odds against our culture and our own thinking at times. To think that uh, there are instructions for us to rebuke one another, uh, that seems so out of place. And yet we recognize the importance uh, that you place upon this and that this is actually an act of love in seeking to help each person in the body uh, grow into maturity in Christ. We pray as an eldership that you would help us with discernment and guidance and wisdom in these matters. We pray for us as a whole congregation that you would help us to be submitting to your word and enabled to follow it by the power of your spirit working in us. Father, we ask this in your son's name. Amen.